The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the entire 15th chapter. Glory to you, Lord. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to listen to him. The Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep, and losing one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just, show, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 people who need no repentance. Or when woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she is found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I have lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that belongs to me. So he divided the property between them. A few days later, this young son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he spent everything, a severe famine took place in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him out in the fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, and here I am dying of hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say, Father, I have sinned against you in heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me my Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But when he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and put his, ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his oldest son was in the field when he came and approached the house. He heard the music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf. Then he, began, then he began to be angry and refused to go in. 
His father came out and, ble and pleaded with him. But his father said, listen, for all these years I've done what you have asked me to do. I've never disobeyed your command, and you've not even given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the, this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the catted, fatted calf for him. Then his father said, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and now has been found. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Every know, everyone knows that John's gospel is radically different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because John's gospel was the last to be written, it has a different focus than the other three gospels. In his thundering, magnificent opening prologue, John makes a theological statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God from the beginning. All things were made through him and nothing that was made without him. From this magnificent opening sentence, John keeps a laser sharp focus on Jesus, God's son, the word made flesh, and how he was made manifest in front of us. In each chapter of John, John says the magnificent words, I am, and then defines Jesus by the words, I am. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Or when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Everything that, that John says defines what Jesus means by these statements, I am. Compared to the Gospel of John, the other three Gospels are more like theological tra travelogues. They are, they are more like here we are traveling with Jesus, and let us show you how Jesus went teaching, preaching, and healing to the people, first in Galilee, and then in Samaria, and then in Judea. There doesn't seem to be a laser-sharp focus. Rather, the journey seems to be most important. One of the few exceptions of this is this chapter 15 in Luke's Gospel. This chapter consists of three parables focusing on the idea of God loving the lost and God rejoicing in that which is found. Whether it was the lost sheep or the lost coin or the prodigal son, we see in these words God's concern for others that the world would reject. And when they are found, God not only rejoices, but says that all of us should rejoice, including the angels and all of heaven, because one who is lost has been found. My father, because he lost his father and mother and a sister early in his life before he was five years old, had a philosophy that said, I will be inured from lost. One of the things he used to tell me early on in my life is know when to cut your losses. 
If he had had the lost sheep, the lost coin, or even the prodigal son, after a time he would have cut losses. He would have said, that's it. I'm not going to bother with that anymore. My mother, on the other hand, seemed to have a third eye to see other people's difficulties and to sympathize with their losses. That's what made her a good nurse and a good nurse supervisor. She was willing to go the extra mile and acknowledge the losses that other people had of their health, of their relationships, and try to help restore what was lost. I learned very quickly that there had to be a reason for a loss and juggle between those two extremes. After the defeat of Germany in World War II, archaeologists began working again in places like Egypt and in the Holy Land to do work which had been interrupted by World War II. In December of 1945, only about six months after, after Germany was defeated, archaeologists in a place in Egypt called Nag Hammadi, 200 miles south of Cairo and about 50 miles north of Luxor, the old imperial city, discovered a treasure trove of books. They were from the fourth century AD, written in Coptic, but they contained Christian stories, but with a slant. Their theology was that of what we would call Gnosticism. That is, a, a, a heresy rejected by the early church. Gnosticism believed that this world was an illusion created by a false god, and only true believers, pure believers, knew what the truth was, and only because they were right with God, because they themselves had this pure knowledge that they would be with God when everybody else would falter. One of the books in this library of books in Nagamani was the Gospel of Thomas. Now, you've probably never heard of the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas contains a hundred and some odd sayings of Jesus. And some of them sound pretty mundane like we hear in the Gospels. Like number 20 that says, the disciples asked Jesus, what is the kingdom of heaven like? He said, it's like a mustard seed. It's, on the smallest, it's one of the smallest of seeds, but when it falls on good soil, it grows and becomes a shrub that feeds the birds in the sky. This is an exact parable of the parable of the exact parallel of the parable of mustard seed that we find in the other Gospels. Now, if it just be like that, that would be wonderful. But then there are other things in, in the Gospel of Thomas that the early church rejected. For example, Thomas has a parallel to our Gospel lesson about the lost sheep today. But boy, is it different in its slant. This is how Thomas portrays the lost sheep. Jesus said, the kingdom is like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. 
one of them, the largest, went astray. He left the 99 and looked for that one until he found it. When he had gone to such trouble, he told the sheep, I care for you more than all the rest of them. Think about it. In Thomas's gospel, the sheep that is lost is the largest, and therefore the most valuable sheep, the one that he wants to be a, a good breeder, the one that was the prize of the flock, the one that would improve the herd as they went along. He was willing to give up the other 99 to keep this one. Notice there's no celebration with anybody else about this lost one found. No sharing. Why should he share? It was his sheep. He is willing to give up anything or everything to keep this one. Our gospel for today in Luke is just the opposite. The sheep that is lost is just an ordinary sheep, perhaps even the most hapless one of the flock, the one that seems to be always wandering off and getting lost rather than staying with the flock for protection. Once the shepherd realized the hapless sheep is lost, he goes out searching for that one, leaving the 99 behind, hopefully with another shepherd. They didn't have sheep dogs at that time. But hopefully with another shepherd while he looks for that one sheep. And when he finds it, he rejoices and brings it back on his shoulders, saying to all his friends, rejoice with me, for this one that was lost has been found. Likewise, the woman who has ten coins, each one worth a day's worth of wages, loses one of them. While none of us likes the idea of losing anything, if most of us lost 10% of our savings, we'd find a way to absorb it. We'd tighten our belts. We'd just say, oh, well, we'll do better next time. But this woman sweeps and searches her entire house until she finds it. And when she finds it, says to our neighbors, rejoice with me for that which is lost and found. Lastly, we have this familiar parable of the prodigal son, where as many scholars have said, it's really more about the loving father. The prodigal son stands for everything that his father and his older brother did not stand for. His father and his brother are hard workers. They have servants and slaves who help them work their fields and work their, their, their flocks, and he's very prosperous. This young son wants none of that. He gets very demanding. Father, give me my inheritance now. This is the inheritance he would get after his father had died. He's always looking for the easy way out. The father being a loving father, perhaps with great, with great regret or great reluctance, sells one-third of what he has because his younger son would get one-third share. And the younger son takes that off, goes away to the far country where he spends the money like a drunken sailor, and as the saying goes, he dissipates himself with wine, women, and song. 
He burns through his inheritance at such an incredible rate until nothing is left. Without money, without any obvious talents, the only thing he is able to find for work is to feed pigs out in the field, something that no respecting Jewish man would ever do. They wouldn't eat a pig, let alone touch one, and here he is feeding them. One day he comes to his senses, my father's servants do better than this. A hired hand in my father's house eats much better than I do. I'll go home and say, Dad, take me as a servant. I can't be your son anymore. But when his father sees him from far off, his father runs to him, kisses him, gets the servants to put a robe on him, put a signet ring on his finger, and sandals on his bare, dirty feet. When the older brother hears of everything that's going on, he's rightly upset. How can his father welcome home this son that has disrespected him and his brother? He is furious. But his father goes out to console his older brother and reassure him, everything I have is yours. You know that. You know that I love you. But rejoice with me, because your brother who was lost has been found. Rejoice with me, because the lost have been found. John Newton's life story lives, reads like an overwrought pulp novel. The son of a prosperous sea captain, his mother died when he was a young kid, and he was left to live with his father's second wife. When he turned 14, his father shipped him off to sea with a friend of his father's to learn about sailing and navigation. He got very good at it. He was an excellent sailor, excellent navigator. The only thing he had was a bit of a temper. He was pressed into service into the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy really needed sailors at that point in time to fight their wars. And he was made a lieutenant because of his knowledge of the sea. However, he had this mouth. And at one point, he upbraided the captain for something that the captain had done wrong. Now, he was right. The captain was wrong. But by upbraiding the authority of the captain, he was flogged. He was put on a, on a grate, flogged 39 times, dunked into the ocean, pulled out, and busted down to an ordinary seaman. Eventually, his father paid to get him out of the British Navy and got him back on another boat, this time a slaver going to and from Africa. He quickly did well on the slave ship, earning enough money to buy his own slave ship, and then began the slave trade between Africa, England, and its colonies. At one point in what is now Sierra Leone, he ran afoul of his fellow trader who worked directly for Queen Pepe, the queen of that land, and who was more than happy to sell neighboring tribes to the British for gold. 
because he ran afoul of this traitor, he was made a slave to Queen Pepe and lived there for a number of years as her slave, doing what she commanded him. He learned firsthand what it meant to be a slave. Finally, his father rescued him again and came back and again worked on a slave ship. This time, however, after accumulating money, he became a slave trader in London, buying and selling slaves. Much more lucrative and much less possibility of problems with others. Eventually, however, he fell under the influence of evangelists George Whitefield and John Wesley, Presbyterian and Methodist. And as he said later on, Although he had been a Christian all his life, he never understood Christianity until he understood it from them. He said it was like scales falling from his eyes. And he became a Christian, true Christian, he said, when he realized what God wanted from him. He became friends with, with uh, William Wilberforce and became a, a vivid anti-slavery person. He was part of the anti-slavery group in England who rejected slavery and was part of the group that saw slaves emancipated by, before he died. He became ordained in the Episcopal Church, but he not only loved the Episcopal Church, he loved the so-called dissenting churches as well and was friends with dissenters like Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists. He didn't care what denomination you were. He cared how much you loved Christ and how much you loved even those who were unlovable. The poet William Cowper joined his church in Olney, and together they wrote a series of hymns, including such things as glorious things of thee are spoken and how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in the unbeliever's ear. But there is one hymn, a simple hymn that Newton wrote himself, which has become by far one of the most loved hymns today based on Newton's own experience. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. Newton understood what grace was all about. From one who was a slaver to one who worked against slavery. From one who took what he could from other human beings to one who gave everything to other human beings. Amazing grace. How can we not rejoice when things that have kept us from God are suddenly gone like shackles on a released prisoner or blindness cured by an operation. How can we not rejoice? So what's the takeaway for us today? Jesus says these parables in answer to the question, why does Jesus bother to reach out with those who are known sinners of his day? the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the Gentile, the unclean, etc. 
Those people, by the standards of the Pharisees and scribes, were not worthy of God's love and were not worthy of any effort by righteous people to get to know and to love as God loves them. And yet Jesus says that's a false understanding of God. No one is more worthy of God's love than any other person, and no one is less worthy. God rejoices when people turn around like John Newton did and finally live the way God intended them to live. Early Christians rejected the gospel of Thomas that some Christians are more superlative than others. St. Paul also goes out of his way to reject the idea that there are some Christians who are better than others. We are not saved because of who we are, but rather whose we are. We are all one flock with one shepherd. So if you're ever feeling lost, or ever feeling so low that you feel that no one can touch you, no one can help you, hold on to this, that God rejoices in you. And if there's someone that you think that is beyond all help, remember this, that God rejoices in them as well. And God further invites us into that celebration to rejoice for that person. For that person had been lost and now is found. They were blind but now they see. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved. <laughs>